How was your 4th of July? It was a totally normal day because I live in London. I don't live in America. Do you not do anything? I haven't done anything special for 4th of July. I tried to do American things. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Did you have a barbecue? I had a hot dog. You had a hot dog? Okay. That's Mm -hmm. halfway there. But you didn't barbecue it? Well, no. Me and uh, Adina were away. We were in Bath, which is one of my favorite British cities. And uh, or towns, I, I can never remember which one it is. And uh, we went to this bar which was serving American food for Independence Day. Mm-hmm. They had like an American flag up and stuff, and we had beer and hot dogs. Did you recklessly endanger your hands with explosives? <laughs> this is also part of the Fourth of July tradition. No, I don't think they were doing any fireworks. Actually, can you buy fireworks in England? I don't know if you can. You well, you can. Um, you definitely can for fireworks night. Mm-hmm. Remember, remember the fifth of November. Yeah, is it the fifth of November? <laughs> yes, it's the, yes, it's the fifth of November. <laughs> I was well because my nephew was born on the fourth, so now I I get those confused now in my brain. Your nephew is not Guy Fox, though. No. So is the fourth of July just something that you're not too fussed about, or is it just because you're here? And when you're here, there's just not the same level of excitement. Yeah, I just forget about it. I, I would have forgotten entirely about it were it not for Twitter and seeing people doing America-y things on Twitter. Fourth of July, it's fun if you're in America and there are barbecues and fireworks and celebrations and things. But here in London, it's just a normal day. It's just a normal day. The Fourth of July is always a tough day for me mm-hmm. because people on social media like to remind me that I'm British. Right. That's just what I get for the entire day. Yeah. <laughs> it's Americans bashing British people on the internet day. Yeah. That's, that's what it can be. Yep. As though you had anything to do yep. with anything that happened 200 years ago. <laughs> and also as though the Americans alive today can claim any credit for the, for the glorious victory that they had. That's yep. the stuff I always find People funny. like to remind me that they, they won. Like, right. we won. I was like, uh, what did you win exactly? Can you explain that bit to me? <laughs> this is just like the sports thing. We won. What did you do? <laughs> <laughs> you did nothing but sit in the stands. But with the with patriotism stuff, it's even worse. <laughs> we won the Revolutionary War. Really? <laughs> you, you weren't even alive when it was occurring. You, you, I don't know. We need to address the heat from last week. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because basically, I don't know how much of this you've seen. The Heat Olympics, is this what you mean? People telling you where they are and how much hotter it is wherever they are? Yeah. Like, I care when I'm physically uncomfortable where I am. Yeah, I saw a bunch of the Heat Olympics. I just wanted to basically state that it's not a competition. Mm -hmm. Like, we weren't looking to compete. And there are hotter places in the world, which we totally accept. But I think the problem that me and Gray were having last week is neither of our homes are equipped to deal with heat. Yeah. That's the difference. And places where it's like 90 and 100 degrees Fahrenheit every single day, like, they're probably better equipped. Oh, yeah. I will be visiting my parents in North Carolina soon. And... The North Carolina summers are awful. They're very hot. They're very humid. But luckily, you never have to be outside for more than 10 seconds in a row ever in North Carolina. You're in your air-conditioned house. 
You step into the garage, which is hopefully air-conditioned as well. You get into your air-conditioned car, and you drive to the supermarket. So the only time you have to be outside is however long it takes you to walk from your car to the supermarket. So North Carolina is functionally entirely indoors. You just don't go outside. And it is prepared to handle those temperatures. But London, as we discussed, is not prepared to handle these temperatures. English people just believe in their minds that their summers are always fine, despite the annual evidence that they are not fine, that they would benefit from air conditioning that they refuse to install. I think one of the things in in that is like, I bet that newer homes now have some kind of central air system, Uh, but many homes here were built before that was even a consideration, which is maybe not the same so much in America. So, like, the houses were built differently. They were built more recently and therefore could have be equipped for that stuff. Like, if if somebody said to me, Mike, you can build yourself a house, I would put air conditioning in that house mm-hmm. because I'm doing it now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, many houses are older, and then I guess we become used to not having it, so we just don't have it. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's, like, today, I don't know, it's like 20 degrees celsius or something today maybe 22 something like that and i would still like to have some air conditioning right now because the the temperature is not exactly as i would like in the room that i'm in today Mm -hmm. the other problem with talking about the temperature is uh, we didn't mention on the day but the humidity on the day we were recording was 100 percent which vastly vastly increases the discomfort and i always get frustrated when people from Arizona then tell you, oh, it was 105 degrees out today. It's like, yes, but Arizona, your 105 degrees is lovely. I have gone briefly hiking in Arizona in 100 plus degree weather, and it's totally fine if you bring enough water because the humidity is zero. So the water just flows through you and you have a natural air conditioning system. But yeah, if the, if the, uh, if the humidity is 100%, your body has no recourse to cool down and you're just like a sad shaggy dog lying on the floor with its tongue out desperately trying to cool off parquet on the reddit has discovered that dayton ohio does indeed have a fashion week oh yeah yep and there's daytonfashionweek.com just because there were many people that were noticing the way that i did is that you actually just didn't seem to believe that fashion week exists well, I like still don't have any idea what what it is. Is this a week where people are extra fashionable? I mean, is it a holiday? <laughs> no. What is it? It's when, like, there are designers, you know, like the big fancy designers, um, not like Grey Industries, uh, the big, uh-huh. big fancy fashion houses. They have fashion shows where they show off their new collections and they do them in different parts of the world. Okay, that doesn't make any sense why Dayton, Ohio has a fashion week then. No. How many fashion designers in the world can there possibly be? Well, well, I mean, I assume that this is local uh, designers. If you look at the Dayton... So it's like a craft clothing week? Is that what you're saying? In Dayton, Ohio, it is. Okay. (laughs) Not not in London. In London, it's a a big thing. The Dayton, Ohio fashion week... uh, Oh, it actually looks like the last one was in 2012, so I don't think it did very well. Um, But it existed. There were people in Dayton that were showing off their fashions. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm not sure if it went much further than that. Obviously, it didn't. No, unfortunately. Maybe all of this uh, additional 
promotion for Dayton, Ohio may help them bring back their fashion week. We can only hope. <laughs> we can only hope. We can only hope. We could start a campaign. This can be like our campaign. I didn't realize we're invested in this now. I'm not invested in this. I am. I don't even understand what this is. I am. Bring back Dayton, Ohio Fashion Week. Maybe we could do our first live Cortex from Dayton, Ohio for Fashion Week. What do you think? No, I disagree. This, okay. This is not a good idea. So Fashion Week, it's just a, it's a, it's like the designers and models walking down runways. That's what Fashion Week is. It's like WWDC for the fashion world. Yeah. Except in multiple cities. It's like an it's like an industry event, right? It is where they show off what they're doing. But yeah, the, comparing it to WWDC is actually a really good comparison. People come for the event, they go to the shows, and business is done. This is the same thing then as Dayton, Ohio, having their own local Apple party during yeah. the week of WWDC. That's what this is. Yeah, it's basically uh, the Mac user group equivalent of a fashion week. Okay. All right. Um, I understand now, I think. Many people are very interested uh, in both the Reddit and Twitter to st- in the idea of you streaming the games that you play. Oh, yeah. We had our, we had our uh, unexpected video game podcast last week, yep. which was frustrating to listen to because I was not even remotely prepared for it. And, and I kept thinking, oh, I, I didn't mention this game or that game or all these other things. And so yes, we've gotten a lot of feedback about that. I get this request a lot where people want to see what are called Let's Play videos or just streaming stuff. So for the members of the audience who might not be aware, I mean, Let's Plays are a huge, huge part of the online video world that you either are deep into or don't know anything about. And it is when someone is recording themselves playing a video game usually with some kind of running commentary over the top. And I do not watch Let's Plays except with extremely rare exception because I don't get very much out of them. This is where I feel like there's a bit of a cultural divide. If I was younger, I might appreciate this form of media, but I don't really get Let's Plays, most of them. I find them just uninteresting. And so when people say, why don't you do Let's Play videos? The, the problem here is that I, the only Let's Play videos that I have ever seen are obviously requiring an enormous amount of work to do, the, the ones that I like. And the ones that I don't like, I don't appreciate the form at all. I don't understand why people watch them or what makes them good. They just seem pointlessly dumb to me. And so this is why it's it's at an unhappy intersection for a project of mine. To do it, it seems like it's an easy project, but I don't understand what makes the ones that look like they're easy to do good, or I don't appreciate what makes those good. And the ones that I think are good are obviously hugely labor-intensive and would just be a whole other job to do. So that's why I don't, uh, I don't think I'll ever do Let's Plays. Where is actually? I just want to pull it up. Is it? Um, uh, okay, yeah. So there, I will. I will name drop here. What I think of as a great example of a let's play done well, which is which is a guy called Beagle Rush on YouTube, and he has a series called Iron Man Impossible, which is for XCOM, and that is perhaps the only let's play series I have ever watched for any great length because he's walking through the game, but he's 
talking about the strategy used to win on each level. And most importantly, he's doing all the voiceover after he's played through, and so he's cutting all of the uninteresting parts and making it go much faster uh, than a normal game actually would. And so that's a lot of, that's a lot of work to do, but I think that they are very good because of it. So this has turned into listening listening to you say this now, it's kind of turned into a very unexpected cortexy like topic. <laughs> Which oh, yeah. I was I wasn't expecting this, but so it's it's raised a question for me. Mm-hmm. It is undeniable that the type of let's play that people have asked for, which is basically just watching you play the game, and even in silence, you could be in silence and just have the audio of the game going on, and people can just observe the way that you play, or you could just talk about what you're doing as you're doing it. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. need to be a running commentary, but you're like, oh, I did this because of this. There is a market for this type of stuff because there are people that that have these channels. There are people that make lots of money doing this kind of thing where it's very simple let's play stuff. Even Twitch streaming, right? It's just a thing. People just streaming the video games that they play. So there is a market for it. Um, There are people that would like to see it, that you do it. Uh, And you're going to be playing the games anyway. So (laughs) what's stopping you from just doing the very bare minimum and just just doing it. You're playing the games. It doesn't. It's not going to take a lot of effort for you to to stream them, um, especially with YouTube gaming on the horizon. Mm-hmm. You have done stuff like this before. There are videos on your CGP Grade Two channel where you've shown yourself playing video games. Every once in a while, I do a screen recording of when I'm playing a game, and I will put it up on my YouTube channel as a time lapse video. So I'll, I'll take a game that I've played over over many hours and compress it down into 15 minutes or so. And I think I've done this with OpenTTD, which is a, a train building game. And I've done this with, I think, something else. I can't remember what else I have. RimWorld? Ah, okay, that's right. I did do a RimWorld one. I couldn't remember. And I was, uh, I was just debating doing one with Factorio, actually, because I'm coming to the end of my life cycle with that game, I think. Was this where you were wondering if you wanted to do a tutorial video again? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was I was already, I was finding myself thinking about, well, what's the bootstrap process for Factorio? But, um... <laughs> your, your brain is so interesting. We were just talking about, it, about you recognizing that you do it every time, and yeah, you did it again. Yeah, and I will continue to do it every time. The thing was, I was, I was... I caught myself thinking, you know, I just talked about this on Cortex. I really should do it this time. (laughs) (laughs) I really should. This is actually a really good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's just another level of my brain trying to trick itself. That's all that's that's happening here. But uh, so, yeah, I have I have done this thing where I record the screen and put it up as a as a time lapse video. And I mean, c- considering the amount of effort required and the number of views, it's it's kind of crazy. Like the just a time lapse video of me playing Open TTD has gotten almost uh, one of them's up to like ninety thousand views, which is ridiculous. Ninety thousand people watching me, you know, silently play a, a train game. Like that in and of itself is more evidence to say that you could do a very bare minimum thing and people will watch it. So you're like then with very little work generating income during the time when you're not making any money this feels like something that the gray spreadsheets would love yeah doesn't it though doesn't it though of yes marginal additional effort for exponential value 
But the thing is, Mike, I find that... So I don't really have hobbies um, because everything in my life that might start out as a hobby or an interest, it eventually either <laughs> turns into work or it gets dropped. Yep. I, I have a very hard time maintaining any kind of interest that, that doesn't have multiple purposes in my life. Yeah, because th- this is the problem with having one... I'm in the same boat. Having one thing that was your hobby that then becomes the way you make your living, mm-hmm. every time you get a new hobby, you wonder if you can make money from it. Right, right. <laughs> And I've always, I've always wanted to be the kind of person who was, who had a hobby, or I've, I've wanted to develop skills that are useless in and of themselves. Uh, it would be really great if I could be, uh, if I could learn how to do wood carving, right? But I know from experience that any time I have attempted to do these, these kinds of intentionally purposeless hobbies, it just falls apart immediately. Or things that I get interested in become work. And so I was I was interested in time management a while ago, and that, that became work, and I was interested in presentations and how to explain things well, and that became work. And there's a few other things that I've I've picked up that have become work in some way or another. And so I, I'm not even sure it would be a good idea just psychologically for me to have mm nothing in my life that doesn't become work. And that's why I'm resistant to even doing the bare minimum that people want of talking over a a game and putting it up on the internet. There's also for me, I find, I don't know how to explain this, but I I find that, that there's a real activation energy in my mind to speaking out loud. I'm aware that I don't like a lot of voice interactions with the computers or the phones like Siri. I, I use it way less than I probably should because there's something in my brain that's hard to get the ball rolling on talking. And so if I was playing a game I would that, that I was recording a commentary for, I would have to be constantly reminding myself that I'm supposed to be talking to an audience who is listening and then it becomes this whole meta thing about oh right and it needs to be entertaining and now you're playing a game not just to mess around with whatever but you're playing a game in front of an audience of people Mm. and that's also why when people even ask us for the twitch streaming which i barely understand twitch seems just monstrously complicated i've tried to figure out a few times how the heck twitch works where they they broadcast games and it's a whole other a whole other ecosystem over there. But even just live streaming the games, I wouldn't want to do that because it would just change the nature of am I actually really relaxing or am I still doing work and then never relaxing? So that's that's partly why I don't do it. Even if I could theoretically earn money for very little additional effort. Okay. I, I get it. I, I get what you're saying. Um yeah. because that idea of then never having a hobby is damaging i guess but there is just that that interesting conundrum of for minimum effort there could be oh yeah on paper it seems like a great idea but 
I'm even aware that when I do record the games for the time lapse, I feel a little bit different when I'm playing them. It's not yeah. much. It's a tiny bit, but I just have to be more aware of things when I'm doing that. Well, that's very normal. Like me and you always chat before we start this recording, and I'm completely aware of how I feel as soon as I press the red button to record. Yes, then it's different. It's yeah. suddenly different because there are people listening right now, Mike. They're, they're out there. Yeah. Talking about this, mm? you're f- are you familiar with PewDiePie? Nobody who works in the world of YouTube can be unfamiliar with PewDiePie. I have watched a few of his videos. He is the number one, or I think he probably is still the number one YouTuber. That Sometimes they change, but he has been the number one YouTuber for quite a while anyway. And he does Let's Plays, not exclusively, but a lot uh, in his videos. So that he's been in the news this week because... Oh, yeah? People found these paperwork that he had to submit to the government about his earnings. Mm-hmm. And he made, in 2014, he made $7 million. Mm-hmm. So he's, naturally, he's been in the news because that's a ton of money. Um, and I think in 2013, he made $4 million? Yeah, he, he has been relatively open about that. I remember yeah. he did an AMA before on he Reddit did. where people yeah. asked how much he made and, and pretty much confirmed that at that time he was making $4 million a year. Uh, but let's see, what are what are his numbers on YouTube now? I'm just curious to see. 37.7 million subscribers. For comparison, I have one point something. Yep. <laughs> and he has 9.3 billion views on Jeez. YouTube. And let's see, what do I have on YouTube at the moment? A quadrillion. No. Uh, yeah, I have 163 million views on my channel. So I mean, that's the relative Not to be sneezed at, but it's just to compare. <laughs> yeah, but this, this, is, uh, this is the nature of any kind of attention-driven field, like anything mm-hmm. in entertainment or the arts in general, is that it's a power law distribution, that the number one person is going to have vastly more than the number two person who has vastly more than the number three person. And then you get an exponential drop-off as you go as you go uh, further out the line. So you should expect that the number one person just seems ridiculous compared even to the number two person. Yeah. So he, cre- he created a video um, talking about all of this and he spoke, it was very from the heart and it was just him just talking about where he came from and how you know he just is a guy who makes the videos um and he says you know people think these videos are crazy they are kind of like really madcap mm-hmm. and you know so like people think i just sit down here and just talk and mm-hmm. just go crazy but there's a lot of work that goes into them which i'm sure you can appreciate um and he talks about why the videos make him happy and stuff like that um and th- but there seems to be people that want to attack him for the money that he makes mm-hmm. and i just wondered like you know this is I'm telling you about this for the first time now, but I just wonder how you feel about this. Like, do you have sympathy in this scenario? Like that now all of his information is is public and he has to deal with people criticizing it and uh, analyzing it and that kind of thing. I just, I have sympathy because the internet allows people to become just crazy famous in a short period of time. And... You have no frame of reference for that, where you know, PewDiePie was just a few years ago a normal dude, and now he's a dude with close to 10 billion views of his material. 
And that's just a weird thing to deal with or to have almost, almost 40 million subscribers. So, so yeah, it's that's a hard thing to handle in a short period of time. And, fr- and from the couple of interviews I've heard with him and the very few things I've read, he seems pretty well adjusted. He seems like he handles it as reasonably well as you can expect anybody to handle this. But, but there's, there's a reason why it seems like some celebrities just lose their mind as their fame increases. Because it's surprisingly difficult to to deal with some of the changes that occur in your life. And when yeah. you're just a normal guy and then suddenly you're earning $7 million a year, that, that's, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm, I'm crying in my cereal for like, oh, how sad it is for PewDiePie to have all this money. That's not what I mean to say, but it's just, it's a different scenario that people have to have to adjust to. But I'm seeing this, I haven't watched the video myself, but I'm presuming it's the let's talk about money video of his. Yeah. Should I watch this now? Do you think that would be a thing to do? Yeah, watch it. Okay, I'm going to watch it. Today's sponsor of Cortex is Audible.com. For listeners of Cortex, Audible offers a free audiobook of your choice and a 30-day trial when you go to audible.com slash Cortex. Choose from over 180,000 different things to listen to. Download whatever you want and begin today. Now, Audible likes us to recommend something to you. I had something planned for this ad, but I'm changing it at the last minute because... I have been listening over the past day and a half to a terrifying book called Super Intelligence, Paths, Designs, Strategies by Nick Bostrom. This is one of those books where enough people whose judgment I trust have recommended it in a short enough period of time that I decided to move it to the top of my queue, and it has certainly caught my attention with its existential horror. In short, the book is about thinking through the inevitability and consequences of developing artificial intelligence. It's one of those books that feels like it's half crazy and half genius, and I've only half finished it. But the reason I can recommend you at least try it is because on Audible, if you don't like a book, you can just return it for a full refund. So even if you already have an Audible account, you can give it a shot, and if you don't like it, You can just return it and get your money back. And if you don't have an Audible account, and this is the first time that you're ever signing up, you can try this one for free. So that's Super Intelligence by Nick Bostrom. Pro tip here, if you find the beginning a little slow going and a little dense because the author is setting up why it is inevitable that we're going to have some kind of artificial intelligence systems in the future, skip to the delightfully named Chapter 8, Is the Default Outcome Doom? That's where you can start with this book if you really want to just jump right into the heart of the argument. Is the default outcome doom? Spoiler alert, yes, it is. So if you want to listen to it, Audible has it. With more than 180,000 things to listen to, there is definitely something for you here. So if you want to show your support for Cortex and get a free audiobook and 30-day trial, sign up today at audible.com slash cortex. Okay, I'm back. Okay, so what did you think of it? Yeah, so I just watched, we just took a break. I just watched the video just to see what he was saying so that I wasn't just talking out of my butt about things that I don't know what he's talking about. But uh, he talks about two things, one of which is that money doesn't make you happy. And there's definitely something to that. There's some actual 
interesting psychological study is it saying once you have fulfilled your needs in life, additional money doesn't make you extra happy. So that given that he's earning $7 million versus $4 million a couple years ago, he's not twice as happy as he used to be. It's like money doesn't, money doesn't work that way. But the one thing he talks about, which I, I think is just sometimes something that people focus on in the economy and particularly the internet economy and how attention works is people saying that his job is really easy. I don't doubt that his videos are more work than they look like because part of the skill is making stuff look like it's easy, look like it's simple and fun. But the truth is, the way the economy works is it doesn't actually matter if his job is really easy. Like That's not how compensation works on the internet and that's not how money works on the internet. Even if it, he just has the easiest job in the whole world, he has been able to generate a huge audience of people. And it is that huge audience that is valuable to advertisers and is thus related to related to the amount of money that he makes. But there's like a moral argument that people whose jobs are harder should be paid more. And that's just, maybe the universe should work that way, but that's not really the way economies actually work. And people just get people just get mad at uh, at people making lots of money for jobs that they perceive as being very easy. But it doesn't even matter if they are very easy. Like that's that's just not how the economy works. Anyway, congratulations to PewDiePie. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about a potential minefield of a topic, which is uh, email. Yeah. Um, I think anybody that's listened to Hello Internet will have an idea of of how you. And you and email and what your relationship with email is. And I want to talk about that a little bit. But before we go into kind of how email is for you today as, mm-hmm. as CGB Grey, the YouTube superstar, mm. I want to talk about your relationship with email going back a bit further so we can try and frame how you are with it now and why and how that's changed. What do you mean? Like, when did I first get email? Well... It's, you know, people's relationships with email changes. You you didn't always receive hundreds of emails a day. Yeah. I'm pretty sure my first email account ever was on Prodigy. And I don't think I received very many emails on that account. No. So I, I actually do think that it's important to take a look at how you have, how your email habits have changed. Because mm-hmm. it helps frame and helps explain to people, I think why you deal with it the way that you deal with it now. Mm -hmm. So when you, I guess when you first started out with email, when you had your Prodigy email account, Mm -hmm. what were you using it for? Who knows what I used that Prodigy account for? I mean, that was, that was back in the middle school days. I I may have had that email account and never actually sent a message to anybody. Yeah. (laughs) Because then I was just, I was just a, you know, a dumb kid in the world. I think eventually I graduated on to a CompuServe email address and then and then an AOL email address. And then I think after AOL, I was on Hotmail for a while and then I went to my university email address. Like this, is the, this is the history of my yep. email. <laughs> so I would guess that like most people, email wasn't an important thing in your life until you started working. Yeah, even at even at uh, the university level, I feel that email. I used it, but it was not 
central to my life. And it was, it was not even remotely as important. I think just professors would send out notifications about homework or canceled classes or stuff over email. But I don't even remember really emailing friends a lot. So yeah, I think yeah, email didn't come into its full horrible shape until the working world <laughs> is when email comes into full force. So explain to me what it was like email was like when you were working in the school because you know my my uh big email time came when I was part of a massive multi billion dollar like multinational corporation mm-hmm. so for me, like I expect that that is maybe as bad as email can get um, <laughs> it, it doesn't sound good. Doesn't no. sound good the way you describe it. No, I'll talk about uh, how what email was like for me at work in a minute. And I actually, part of my job towards the end was sending emails to millions of people, which is another really <laughs> weird thing to do as a, to do when you receive lots of email. I was one of the people that everybody hates. Uh-huh. Um, but what what was email like at the, at school? Did you get lots and lots every day? Like I just can't imagine, like when I was at school, why teachers would get email. Doesn't make sense to me. Oh. Like, who's emailing you? <laughs> okay, the thing is, different places have very different email cultures. So at the the various schools I was at, things were quite different. But one of the most common things that you get a lot of emails about at the school is some problem with some kid about something, and. Because of a lack of technical competence at all of the schools that I worked at, these emails would just be sent out to every single teacher. So there would be some email like, oh, little Susie is sad today because her hamster Cuddlekins died. So please be extra sensitive to Susie today in classes. It's like, okay, that's great. I don't teach Susie. I don't even know who she is. Why am I getting this email? (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) Oh, I'm getting this email because you have just sent this to the list of every single teacher at this school. Mm -hmm. It's extra helpful when the email would be phrased in this exact way, where it's Susie. Susie, no last name Susie. Like, okay, well, there are several Susies. Or description, even. (laughs) Yeah. So you would get a lot of emails like that because Mm. you think if you're at a school with a couple hundred kids. I was, uh, actually, I'm trying to think of my... That's smaller a small s- school. Yeah, I'm, I'm, at my smaller schools, let me just... We had, uh, what was it, five years, three forms, about 20 kids per form. So that's about 300 kids, is that right? Did I do oh that math my right? Word. Uh, my school had uh, over 2,000 students. Mm-hmm. So I taught at a school that was like that, but uh, three out of the four schools that I taught were in the hundreds of students range. But so even when you're talking about hundreds of kids, there's always something that's going on. And so you get a bunch of emails just about all kinds of stuff that's happening with all of the students. And that's really frustrating because you're trying to filter through the stuff that is relevant to you. You don't care about the stuff that's not relevant to you. So that's one of the kinds of things that you can email about. There's also always stuff about policy updates or when meetings have been changed. You know, all the normal kind of corporate stuff when you have a bunch of humans together trying to arrange things. Uh, But what I say that email cultures can be different is that uh, at the school I did teach at that had thousands of kids, no longer hundreds of kids, 
and thus also hundreds of teachers. This one school allowed a thing that I will never understand why wasn't crushed. They had an email all staff button that every staff member had access to. Mm. Now, what people use this for was as a a tiny Craigslist in the school. Oh. (laughs) Oh my God. If I had been the headmaster of that school, this is one of the very first things I would have put a stop to. But I would log into my email address and every day there would be several, I'm selling my 10-speed gear bike. Uh, you know, it's it's from 2005. I've hardly used it. It's blue. Here's a picture. You know, message me back if you want and I'll bring it into school on the next day. Or, oh, I, I, ha- I have a surfboard that I haven't used in a while. If anybody wants to buy it, let me know. And there was just no... There was no etiquette about this? Like, it wasn't an issue? Oh, it was an issue. I feel like I was one of the few people who who was, like, pleading for this to stop. But everybody else was like, oh... Is this is this is useful? If I have something, I'll just I'll just try to try to sell it. But it, but it's like, guys, there's too many humans here. There's too many point to point things that people want to talk about. You shouldn't let any member of staff be able to email another member of staff. And that that was one of the worst email cultures I had ever seen. But just in general, when you have large groups of people together you have the the thing that i always call it, like death by carbon copy oh, where yep. because of the way humans are there is a combination of people wanting to feel important stroke people covering their own ass hmm. which results to if there's any doubt at all carbon copy everybody that this thing might potentially be related to and so that's that's what email is like in schools and i'm sure just like in companies of just so much stuff that ranges from like the absurd this shouldn't be here like the craigslist system to the just simply frustrating like Susie, who i don't teach but i'm still getting emails about her to everyone i work with feeling the need to carbon copy everybody about everything so that their butts are all covered or that these people feel important that's that's what email's like. I'm sure this this doesn't sound wildly unfamiliar to you in your corporate setting. Yeah, this is a very interesting thing because that is incredibly similar to what it was like for me. Mm-hmm. Which it just surprises me that a school is kind of like a big soulless corporation in that regard. We oh, yeah. We didn't have the Craigslist thing. Mm-hmm. that you had that would not be allowed there mm-hmm. were like uh department newsletters where people might be able to throw something in there that was sent out on a friday mm-hmm. you know which was fine uh there was one that included a really off-color joke which was incredible that it went mm-hmm. out and then there was like this was this one time and then there was a an email sent like an hour later which was in attempt to retract the joke. Very yeah. weird, but that was one of my favorite things that ever happened in our company. <laughs> we rescind this joke. Like, it was never there in the first place. It's like, you can't, that's not yeah. how these things work. Yeah, there's no memory hole, guys. <laughs> but we had we had the, the death by carbon copy thing because it was the idea of everybody always was just trying to make sure that they weren't going to get fired. 
Mm-hmm. That was that's just a that was the co- biggest problem of corporate culture, and so it was basically just people would send out emails and they would copy in everyone that they thought was important or that thought that they should know on it, or like say there was a project, there was some kind of project which had multiple layers of task forces and teams mm-hmm. that ended up with like a hundred people on them, and you would get copied in, and there would be a conversation between two people, and twenty five emails later, you're still in this chain. Mm-hmm. I got lots of this. Like you know, I would go away. I remember one time I was away for uh, one afternoon and one day, and I had seven hundred and fifty emails in mm-hmm. my inbox, which is no way to work. It's just the worst. There are so many emails that could have just been in person conversations, but mm-hmm. people want to have like these. The paper so, trail. Yeah, they just want to have them because, like, why not? Why not put it in there? Because then maybe somebody else will pick it up at some point. Mm-hmm. So. I actually think that this conversation is important because I can see now where some of your problem of email comes from. Being in a scenario where you are bombarded all day with pointless email really does change the way that you think about it because then I started to apply some of my anger towards email to even the nicer email that I get, which is email about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I have always been of the uh, inclination like you to be very um, very strict about the way that I let email work in my life. However, I have some things that I'll tell you about in a bit that I'm sure will really horrify you with the mm-hmm. way that I work with email. You might you might be surprised. I am vastly regretting suggesting email as a topic. It's just I brought it up because it's been on my mind, but it's been on my mind because email has become more of a problem for me lately than it has been uh, when I recorded that episode of Hello Internet like a year ago. Interesting. I was hoping that was the case. Oh, you were hoping I was having problems with my email? Great. Thanks, Mike. (laughs) You know what I mean. (laughs) When you started out with YouTube and the fan mail began, how did you originally treat it and how did it make you feel? Just as on that episode of Hello Internet, I need to have the disclaimer that I'm going to sound like a total jerk here but we're both going to it's totally (laughs) fine gray we're in a safe environment right now we're gonna sound terrible not a safe environment um it is for the next couple of days (laughs) the when you first receive this kind of stuff it's it's very nice but um it's also just a validation that what you are doing is appreciated by people so if you make something and you put it out in the world and people respond in a positive way, that is an indication that you have made something that people like. Because you can't ask people in your life, oh, what do you think of this thing that I've made? Because they can't possibly be objective. The best thing that you can get is positive feedback from someone on the internet who is totally uninvested in your situation. So the, the fan mail is, is nice at the beginning, because it is part of this positive feedback system. But I, I don't know. I, I have always been doing stuff on the internet for a long time. And, and so I've always just been aware of, of the email as a... It's very hard even just to deal with emails as though they are from people when they're from strangers. So that's what I mean. It's like the, the bulk of it is a good signal. But the particulars of any individual email... It's it can be hard to evaluate what that means, but when you start getting those emails, 
if you are then making something that becomes increasingly popular, the number of those emails increases. And so the value of any one individually decreases. And as a friend of mine, Derek Veritasium, has said that the, the value of positive feedback trends towards zero. That the initial positive feedback is very valuable, but much later on, each additional piece of positive feedback, its marginal utility is almost zero. And that's just a strange position to to be in, um, to be on the receiving end of. So I'm going to try and dig us out of the problem that can be perceived when talking about this type of feedback. Okay. It is not that I don't want to receive feedback uh, and or hear nice things from people about the, the fact that they enjoy the work that we do. Because I love that. I love to receive it. The problem is, it's not, again, it's not the amount. It is the inbuilt problems with email as a system and email etiquette as a horribly broken thing which make this type of communication more difficult to deal mm. with. Because one of the problems with email is that there is not a this is where the nice stuff goes box. Because all email goes to the same place. Mm. All goes into that one email account. Or that one app which houses the many email accounts that, that mm -hmm. you have. So the problem is I can't go in there very easily and be like, just show me the nice stuff and ignore the fact that there's other stuff in there as well. Like it's very possible for me to set up a filter or to do a search and just to deal with it that way. But it doesn't detract from the fact that there is still all the other stuff. And it's like this mm -hmm. mental block where it's like, well, this thing is full, irrespective mm -hmm. of what's in there. Because there are mechanisms of feedback that I love and I know that you love which can even in some instances house as much text as uh, an email can, can house, like Reddit, for example, mm -hmm. which you champion as a feedback method. Mm -hmm. But it has a very, very different set of inbuilt social rules that make it a more welcoming place to receive feedback for me and you. Mm -hmm. And I feel the same about this way with Twitter as well. Because email has a social responsibility to it of replying mm -hmm. because people draw from email or that the ideas of email came from letters, mm. right? physical letters. And when someone wrote you a letter, you would write them a letter back because when this correspondence kind of thing began, it was like, well, that's the main amount of letters that you get is those types of things that you would respond back to. But the problem is brands live in email <laughs> and you know they send you stuff and business happens through email and stuff comes through that way so mm -hmm. the idea of like reddit and other social methods of feedback are much more welcoming because i think that people generally don't expect replies in the same way so when you throw something out into the reddit for example even more so because i think reddit is more closer to email because Twitter is very limited in what you can say, but Reddit, mm -hmm. you can just chat and chat and chat and keep talking. Mm -hmm. People know that you're there and reading it, and other people can respond to it and converse about it. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a very different thing. It's a more public thing. But from the comments that I've seen in the Reddit for this show, 
people don't seem to don't don't really change the types of stuff that they say that they would say via email like Mm -hmm. they say the same kinds of things maybe even more so in the reddit people are more honest than they would be in email because they're addressing everyone as well as just Mm -hmm. you um so they they speak a bit more freely i have found anyway so that kind of those methods and the inbuilt social kind of feelings about that type of type of feedback works a lot better for me and I know that I feel like it works a lot better for you as well. Yeah, things like Twitter and Reddit do not carry the same burden of reply that emails do. So I feel no obligation to reply to everything on my Twitter stream. I don't even, I am not a Twitter completionist. So when I log on to Twitter, I often just, you know, right to the top past hundreds of messages because it's just, there's, that social obligation is not there. And then the same thing on Reddit where I'm there, I've read the comments, but I feel that there is no obligation to reply to every single one. And people on Reddit also have that understanding of you're not going to reply to every single comment that's here. You're going to pick and choose what you're going to reply to. So, But email is different because it's point to point. And yes, everything about email, even, even the app icons, reinforces the letter relationship that email has that this is much more like a letter and someone has has written this thing to you and email services systems and tools including the way that badges work and stuff like that reinforce the idea that everything that's in here needs to be worked on okay unlike like so we post uh, a podcast online and i put it up on reddit and then people are discussing it on the reddit and we can go through and we can look at the feedback and that's great it's great because it's also constrained do you know what's not on the Reddit? My tax accountant also telling me about stuff that huh. needs to happen with my taxes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's not a wide-ranging discussion that includes everybody in my life who's even tangentially connected to me attempting to get my attention. And this is this is one of the problems with email is it is unbound in who is reaching out to you. So when I open my email, I can have messages from, you know, business partners, from banks, from family, from friends. It's the whole spectrum of life is there in email, which is why I think it ends up for many people becoming such a like a focus of problems. Because your email icon, when you press it, this is the button that says... I am now going to look at all of the requests that everybody in the world has of me. That's that's what email functionally is. And that's why it can be quite difficult to deal with. Because it's also filled with many different kinds of requests. Things that can take two seconds or things that can take hours and hours. And that, that also makes it much more difficult. Whereas on Twitter, if I wanted to be a Twitter completionist, I could go through that timeline really quickly because the domain of the problem of responding to anybody on Twitter is limited. You know, I'm, I'm never going to respond to anybody with more than a sentence or two. But if I get an email from someone, it can represent a whole afternoon's worth of work of digging through papers in my house, for example. That's the kind of thing that can come through email. Or it's just someone sending me a funny picture. And then I can respond just with, oh, that was great. It's it just, it's so varied and so expansive in its nature. It makes it difficult to 
deal with in a consistent manner. Let's talk about the types of emails that we get. Right? Mm-hmm. So, because uh, I'm interested in, in painting a picture of the variation and how that stuff works. So, primarily my emails are split into two camps, which mm-hmm. is information about sponsors and feedback. Mm-hmm. They are my two main camps. Although, very interestingly, I am shocked at how little email I have received about this show. Hmm. I'm talking like a handful of feedback mm-hmm. emails. People really understand, which is great. And they, <laughs> they go to the Reddit and they, they put it there, which is fantastic. And I love that people are doing that because I really like it. Mm-hmm. So email is incredibly important for my business because of the sponsor stuff. A lot of it goes through there. So people contacting me for sponsorship, me contacting sponsors for information, and we exchange a lot that way. Um, it's how I arranged this show to make money and all of our other shows to make money. And it's also how, in some instances, um, for a bunch of our shows, how I hear from listeners, right? So those two things are very important. Mm-hmm. But then you couple that with email newsletters, mailing lists, uh, companies contacting me that I'm not interested in. Uh, I get solicitations for business that I just don't care about. Like all of this other stuff, that when you put all of that on top, it makes it even harder to get to those two camps of emails that are important, right? Mm. I don't really have a lot of filters in place for for dealing with this kind of stuff. Um, do you? So I looked up some things about my email before we started the show, just so I could have some answers for you. And I get... When I open up my email client, I averaged it over the past month, I usually get about 150 emails a day. Now, that is after several dozen filters that I have set up that automatically delete all kinds of stuff. Can you give me examples of the types of things that are automatically deleted or archived? Uh... Just tons of notifications from various websites that I can't figure out how to stop them sending me the notifications. Sure. LinkedIn, I'm looking at you. Just can't. It's impossible. Yeah. Don't even try. Yeah. Facebook is the same way. Facebook, it's like, like I know I've told you many times, Facebook, never to email me about this stuff. So I, I have a bunch of bulk filters for that. That's the easiest kind of stuff. Uh, I have some more complicated ones. The ones I have joked about is I do have a filter. I forget the exact phrase, but it is something like I am a reporter from. Uh, just automatically delete that. I'm not interested. Interesting. Uh, yeah, that could be a whole other thing. Um, so I, I have a bunch of filters like that. Just usually it's this kind of notification stuff that's hard to figure out how to make it go away. But that That's the bulk of it. I'm trying to pre-delete non-actionable stuff that I don't need to see. But yeah, so after after that level, there's still about 150 emails a day. And those are messages that are sent almost exclusively directly to me. And they're largely from people. They're from people who have watched the videos or they're from people who are reaching out for business reasons or they're people that I know in my life who are emailing me. those messages in a perfect world, I would say 80% of them would have some kind of action attached to them in just that there would be some kind of reply, even if it was just to say thanks, right? In an ideal world where I have infinite time, there would be something to be done with maybe 80% of those messages. So that's, that's what I'm looking at on a, on a daily basis. 
And it was interesting to uh, to check against. I listened to that episode of Hello Internet on email uh, before we started recording because I was just curious. Like, what was it at the time? And so when we were recording, then I was estimating that I was getting about fifty to a hundred messages a day. So in the space of a year, it's you know it's increased by fifty seventy five percent, something like that. So that episode of Hello Internet, Hello Internet episode number six, it will be in the mm-hmm. show notes for today. Um, recommended listening, but not required for, for yeah. this discussion. Because I think enough has changed. But I also did listen to it again today because I wanted to just make sure that I was completely confident in what I wanted to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. So of the email that breaks through those filters, mm-hmm. what it, what is it broken down into? What are the categories of email that then lands in your inbox? I will just state for the record as well. At the moment, I probably get in the region of like 30 to 50 emails a day, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. reckon. It's probably around mm-hmm. that kind of limit. What what do you ask me? What kind what kind of messages? Yeah, when it because you know, like I, I kind of said that my my type of email breaks down into mainly contact from sponsors and feedback from listeners. They're like the biggest camps mm-hmm. of email that I receive. Mm-hmm. So like, what I assume that feedback is obviously a large portion, um, but what what else is there that breaks through that that limit? Yes, f- feedback, a huge portion of which is people telling me how I'm wrong about something. That's right. That's, that's a lot of emails. People love to point out stuff in the videos. Do you want to get that? Here's the thing. I have rarely found that to be useful. Because, like, we've spoken already about, like, there's little you can do. Yeah. Once it's up, like, there's little you can do about it anyway. The other thing, when I say places that I am wrong... Largely what I get are emails from people telling me about how I've simplified a situation. And it's always, yeah, this was a four-minute video mm-hmm. on the internet covering a hundred years of history. I, I didn't touch on everything. But so people want to point out things that I have left out of the video. And those emails I just almost always delete immediately. Like I can get a good sense of what they are from just skimming them very briefly, like first sentence, first sentence, okay, delete. You're just a person who wants to, you, like, you want to demonstrate to me that you know a lot about this topic. And like, that's great if I got one of these a week, but I get 10 of these a day. And so I, like, I can't read these. I'm not going to respond to these. It's just not, it's just not going to happen. Other times people send me ideas for videos in the future like topics that they want me to cover. So yeah, it's it's feedback from from people. But then there's a lot of stuff that just falls into the category of business email, things that are related to the running of my business. And those are the emails that are harder to deal with because they take up much more time. My current system, which is not working great, but it's it's better than nothing right now is that I have on my Mac some smart folders which are trying to filter out the email that's coming in into broadly speaking three groups. So the first group are people that I have explicitly labeled as VIPs. The second group which is useful is the ones that are people who are in my address book, but not necessarily labeled explicitly as VIPs. And then the third group is everybody not in those two groups. So someone who has sent me an email 
and they are not in my personal address book. That's how I'm trying to triage the email as it comes in. So if you listen to that Hello Internet podcast from a year ago, I was much better at email then than I am now. I have gotten worse at email in the past year. What does worse mean? Worse means it's taking longer to reply to messages than is ideal. That, that's what I mean by worse. Okay. So there's an enormous number of emails that I am just not going to reply to. It's just not going to happen. And so I archive them or I delete them. They're just, they're just passing through the system. But so here's, here's the thing is, is that now that I've triaged email into these three groups... The problem is that messages from people I've explicitly marked as VIPs, generally speaking, these are not simple emails to reply to. These are emails, if they are business-related, that take a long time to do or that require thinking about. They're usually not just quick responses. And so when I'm going through my email, what I'm trying to do is working from the top down in the VIPs, but because these emails are longer emails and they, they take more time, I'm finding that I have a hard enough time just getting through the VIP section of my email list. I haven't cleared that folder out in a while, which then doesn't mean good things for the next level down, which are just the people who are in my address book, but not necessarily explicitly marked as VIPs. And then it's very, this is very strange to me, but I have now also become one of these people who has a large number of unread messages because that third level of triage, the people who are not in my address book at all, I haven't gotten to the bottom of that in a long time. Mm-hmm. So this is this is something that is different for me. And when, like a year ago, me used to be much better at clearing out my email but current me is is not. And it's partly because the volume of emails have gone up. But it's also partly because the number of projects that I'm working on has gone up. And so I actually I am dedicating much less time in my schedule to getting through email. And so that's why there's like a backlog building up. But it's very hard to it's very hard to say at any any moment in time. Is grinding through my email, does that is that a more valuable task to work on right now than getting the next video out or working on the next podcast? And the answer to that is, is no. Like email is usually filled with problems. It's it's not so much projects that I can move to completion and then share with the world. So that's one of the things that I'm having a bit of difficulty with email is like there's more of it. And because I'm doing many more projects now, I'm also dedicating less time to it. And so that's why there's like a there's a backflow building up in my in my system. So you mentioned that there's typically a lot of work related stuff going into there to help you run your business. But how how is that? Is that not being affected by the fact that you're now spending less time in email? Yeah, so this is this is what I was talking about last time a little bit is what kind of problems do you let into your system? And there are definitely things that have come up because I have not replied to emails fast enough. But in the system of my business, getting out videos and getting out podcasts like fixes that problem. I'll give you an example 
of just a silly problem that happened recently. Okay. Which is, so I have these three levels, VIPs, contacts, and then grind, everybody else. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I call it grind. Love it. Great. That's such a great name. (laughs) The reason I call it grind is because... That's what it takes to get rid of it. Yeah, these are two different kinds of groups of email. The VIPs and contacts are emails that require me to be thinking about. They're things that can't be done easily. Whereas the grind emails are emails that I can do in the delete flag, delete reply mode of, I'm just trying to burn through these as fast as possible to get this number down lower. So I want to just clarify that that is the process of going through the inbox and just triaging it on mass. Like that goes, that goes, need to come back to that. That goes, that goes, need to come back to that. Yeah, yeah, that that's more or less what I'm doing there with with those messages because they're usually messages from people that I don't know, or they're um, they're automated messages from banks or whatever. They can be go- they can be gone through in a very fast mode. But the reason I separate them out is because I was I was finding that I was having a problem where I was trying to go through email and. As I was going through it very quickly, I'm in that mode of like, right, delete, 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 reply, delete, delete. If I hit an email that was a big deal, so like say something from my accountant where I now need to gather a whole bunch of papers together, that that changes the flow of how this thing goes. And and so I found I found it helpful to try to filter out these two groups. Yep. That's one of the big changes in your system. Is this yeah. big, is this on mass filtering? Yeah, that's that's different now from a year ago. But the the silly problem that I was going to mention, or it's not it's not really silly, but uh, I recently <laughs> I recently moved my parents from one email system to another. But this meant that their email address changed. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so <laughs> because their email address changed, I forgot to update this in my system. Yeah. And so I basically, I've been missing out on two weeks worth of increasingly sad messages about like, oh, oh I haven't heard from you. <laughs> and so like, oh, no, I, I talked to my parents the other day and realized, oh, right, I need to, I need to go back into the system and pull them out of the grind folder by updating the smart filters about their email addresses. Like, no, it shouldn't go in there. And now, now I'm looking at if I look at my uh, VIP section, there's four emails from uh, my parents about flights. So it's interesting to me that uh, you communicate with family members via email. I feel like that you would prefer a different method of communication in this scenario. Yeah, the the thing with email with flights is just that there's a lot to write and there's information that's going back and forth and being copied and pasted. So email kind of does make sense in this scenario to use but this this falls right back into my problem of email is just containing a large number of different things mm-hmm. and that's why it's, it's like oh I'm, I'm in business mode and then oh but now i'm replying to my parents about something and this is like an entirely different person writes this email than writes a negotiation email over ad rates he's like your brain has, just has to switch gears yep uh, a lot this is a good illustration of one of the big problems for me and you, I think, in with email is it is a system of chaos. Mm-hmm. 
which I don't deal with very well, typically, and things are chaotic like that. Mm. And I think that you prefer to have things more organized. But email is just chaos because you can you cannot be in one mode trying to deal with it. Yeah. Because, like, my email is, there is business things. There are emotional things. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there are uh, things that you don't care about. There are things that you really care about. Like, it's impossible for me to get into a mindset yes. and deal with email. So, like, I try and just deal with it as soon as possible. That mm-hmm. is my 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 method of, of email is, okay, so here's the thing that's going to terrify you. Uh, I have notifications on for all email. Mm-hmm. So every email that I get, I get a notification on my Mac or on my watch or on my phone, depending yeah. on what device I'm using. Yeah, I know this. I've seen this in action in person. Oh, yeah, of course you have. So but the thing is for me is that then I don't need to get into time to do email mode because mm-hmm. the stuff that is important gets picked up. Mm-hmm. or I'm at least aware of it. So then I just go and do it. But I'm incredibly good at ignoring emails that I don't want to deal with right now. Like, mm-hmm. if there is an email that comes in, I don't want to deal with it right now, I don't go to my email inbox. And then for me, personally, what that does is it allows me to not have to get into email mode and then have to deal with all of the craziness that could could come from it. Mm-hmm. So I can just kind of deal with it as and when I need to. And also... Uh, mailbox that I have on the notifications. I have a, just an archive button, so stuff I never want to see. I just I never even see it when I then open my email because it's gone already. Mm-hmm. See a subject line, not interested, or see a sender, not interested, archived. I'm not even in the email app and I'm archiving it. Mm-hmm. So that that works for me because then I'm I'm effectively triaging constantly. And plus, with the type of work that I do, sometimes there are emails that I want to work on immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something that comes in, a request that comes in, or something like that, and I want to do it straight away. So it works. That even though, like, I know that it kind of contradicts the chaos idea a little bit. Um, mm. That works a lot better for me than opening an email inbox and there be fifty things in there because that freaks me out more than anything else. Seeing mm. that really long list, I don't like that. So yes. dealing with it more frequently makes me feel more comfortable. Yeah. I, I can I can totally see that because I hate the long list as well. And one of the things I have found surprising is I actually like doing email on my phone, partly because there's no way to see the long list of emails on the phone. There's just one email that takes up the whole screen and I reply to it and then I archive it and then the next message just comes up. There's no selection there's no choice. There's no list of everything. It's just try to make these go away one at a time. Well, there is the inbox list. But I mean, once you click on ah, an email... It's full screen. It's full screen, and now you're not looking at it. Whereas the thing that I hate about ma- uh, mail on the Mac, even though I-, I do like it generally, is there's no real way to hide the long list of emails on the side. And... Just like in the way I use OmniFocus and, and getting things done, I find it extremely helpful to limit the number of things that you can see that you need to work on. So even when I have a long list of stuff in OmniFocus, I've tried to set it up so that OmniFocus is only showing me three things that can be done right now. Even if I have a hundred things to do in the day, only three of them ever show up at a time. And 
email, I, I wish I could have the email on my Mac work more like that. Of I don't want to see the long list. I just want to see the one email that I'm replying to now. I don't want to see all of the emails that I need to reply to all at once. It, I just don't find it, I don't find it helpful. But um, I think you, you are right about the, about the mode of email is a tricky thing. This is the lesson I have learned about myself about working is it's, it's very helpful to maintain modes and email just does not have a consistent state. It's, it's very, very variable over time. So I have a question for you. Yeah. That big box of email, the grind list. Yeah. That's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And there's just processing that needs to occur. Mm-hmm. Why don't you pay someone to do it for you? What about so, the elusive personal assistant? Well, it's funny you mentioned that. Because just a couple of days ago, I, I actually had my personal assistant agree to filter off a, a certain amount of email. So... I have been trying to figure out ways to make this this problem go away because I'm a, again you're talking to me at a, at a at a kind of funny time. I suggested the email topic because it's been on my mind because precisely now I find myself again in a situation of mm, this is not working well your current system. So something needs to change because I, I am a firm believer in when something is not working well in your life, just try harder is always the wrong answer. Like that is never the correct answer to to improving stuff. You need to figure out how to change the system to make things better. Like this yeah, is if, if there is a problem as a systemic issue for the problem. Yes. And it, it's like you want to you want to automate the solution in some way or just change what the system is because I know full well that like okay, I am going to be spending less and less time on email going forward. So I need to figure out a way so that stuff still happens or what, you know, what needs to come to my attention comes to my attention because in the past few months, I've been really aware that email has become this, this kind of black hole for people who are trying to contact me about various things. And it just isn't working out very well. But the, but the problem with email is it's so central to everything. Like, I can't just turn over my email account to anybody because it's the connecting point for everything in my whole digital life. So, like, email is such a, like, the email addresses that control, say, my YouTube account. Like, it's just too valuable no matter how much you trust anybody to turn that over directly. So I'm trying to figure out ways to with filters and things, divert a certain amount of email to my personal assistant for just straight up processing. Or I'm tr- I'm trying to remove myself as the connecting point from certain kinds of, of conversations that are occurring where I am the bottleneck in a conversation between three people. Like, is there a way that I can remove myself as the bottleneck from here? Because that is a permanent solution as opposed to, well, I'm just going to buckle down and dedicate two hours every day to email, which then has knock on effects of producing fewer videos and podcasts. Right? That's, that's not a good, that's not a good solution. Like this is how, this is how specialization works is, you know, if you are, good at something you should do the thing that you are good at and you shouldn't do the things that you're not good at and i am increasingly aware that i am i am at a level of email that it doesn't make it doesn't make sense for me to be trying to do 
all of this in the way that a year ago I could still be on top of it, whereas now I'm no longer on top of it. It's just too much. It's just too much. I am happy to say that this week's episode of Cortex is brought to you by Igloo, the internet you'll actually like. Igloo is a great sponsor for this week's episode because we're talking about like dealing with email inside of companies and stuff like that. Well, Igloo is a great way to get rid of a lot of the junky and rubbish email that you don't want to have to deal with because it is a great place for you to be able to coordinate and talk to and liaise with your coworkers. Igloo enables you to be able to be wherever you want to be and do the type of work that you want to do. Whether you want to manage a task list from your laptop during a meeting or share status updates with your colleagues about the sales that you just made from your phone as you're on your way out of the door or maybe you want to access the latest version of a file from home without having to dig through an email inbox to find it it's all living in igloo it's designed fantastically your igloo will feel like a place that you actually want to be it's really configurable and you can completely rebrand it to give it the look and feel of your team you can set up everybody's group spaces exactly as they want they have a great drag and drop widget editor This enables you to organize the whole platform to fit exactly how each of your teams operate. With Igloo, you can very easily share files of your coworkers without having to send them on massive email chains. You're all just able to go into Igloo's document previewing engine and grab the latest version of a file that's there. Or you can integrate with services like Box, Google Drive, and Dropbox and put them into one big, easy-to-secure, super lockdown platform. They also have something called read receipts as well on documents, so you can track who has read and looked at information. This is another great way to reduce the email that goes around a company asking, have you checked this? This document, can you see if Bob's checked this document? You can just log into Igloo and see who's looked at it. Igloo is a great way for you to work with your team, collaborate with your team, share information with your team, and just everybody can work better together when they're using Igloo. It's time to break away from an internet that you hate. Go and sign up for Igloo right now and you can try it out for free with any team of up to 10 people for as long as you want. Sign up right now at igloosoftware.com slash cortex. Thank you so much to Igloo for their support of this show and Relay FM. What you said on, on, on the episode of Hello Internet is the way that you look at the email that you look at is you kind of read the first line, see, and then kind of read the sec like the first paragraph, read the first line and second paragraph, and then that gives you a good understanding mm-hmm. of what the email's content is. Mm-hmm. Um, do you still, is this kind of still the way when you are going through email that you're not necessarily familiar with is this kind of a similar system still you kind of just like glance at the first line and it gives you a good or you feel at least gives you a good idea of what you need to do yeah that's still what i'm doing when i'm going through the grind section of my email is sight skimming those emails very fast and making very snap judgments about if anything needs to be done with those and overwhelmingly the answer is no, but yes, that is that is still something that I do when I'm when I'm going through emails that are not from people in my address book. So one of the reasons I mentioned this is because I found the first email I ever sent you. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's in our show notes. I took a screenshot. Oh yeah. So it's the first email I ever sent you. Having listened to Hello Internet previously, I set it up very differently to the way that I usually write these types of emails, and I wanted to interview you. I have no memory of this. There you go. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, I can see this. All right. That looks like a response I'd write. But do you see do you see how it's written? So it starts off 
Hello, Mr. Gray. I'm writing to see if you would be interested in being a guest on my new interview podcast sometime soon. Mm -hmm. This is nothing like the way I usually write this email to people. This this is following my advice on that Hello Internet show of open with what you want. Exactly. So that's very much what I did. Uh Uh-huh. Because usually I start these emails explaining who I am, Mm -hmm. which I know is exactly not what you're looking for. No, it's not what I'm looking for at all. But the thing that surprised me the most about this is you replied the very next day, (laughs) which I never understand. Like, I was like, what? And you said no, and you were very courteous in the way that you said no, and you were very kind to me, and you had proven that you had read the email because uh-huh. you said I'll be sure to check out the new show when it launches which I was that that was very that felt very good to me because you were acknowledging me and then saying that you would listen to my podcast which was very nice of you uh-huh. uh but yeah I just wanted to include that as a thing cuz I just thought it was quite entertaining yeah so th- this is you sent me an email asking me to be on inquisitive yep and then I said hi mike thanks for the invitation but I'm afraid I'm not doing other podcasts at this time I'll be sure to check out the new show when it launches. This is now the show that has become your music interview show, which I am not listening to as we discussed last time. Well, at that time, it was just a straight up interview people about what they do. Oh, yeah. No, I know. But I just think it's funny that now it's like, now you are on a podcast with me and I'm telling you how I don't listen to the very show that you first approached me about. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I don't don't remember... uh, this at all so this is what a year a year ago almost exactly pretty much a year ago exactly Hmm. but no this is this is structured well for reaching out reaching out to someone but yes i replied the next day and if you if someone was emailing me now it is very likely that i wouldn't reply for months if at all so this has gotten increasingly worse in a very very quick period of time yeah, what, is, what has happened is that I used to look at email every day. And over time, that interval has gotten longer and longer between times that I look at email. And so now it's much more like a fortnightly email schedule where I just literally don't open email or look at it for longer and longer periods of time. And it's, it's this combination of, of things that I just, email is, is like the physical mail, right? Where it is an enormous amount of stuff that you don't need to do anything about. Like you think of the letters that actually go to your house, like a bunch of that is, there's nothing to, there's nothing you can do about it. And then there's just a few things that are really problems that you need to avoid, and so like that that is my experience with email now as well largely is it's a lot of stuff that there's nothing specifically to be done about and then the rest of it is problems that I'm trying to avoid it's like um it's like a downside avoidance machine is is what email is whereas creating things on the internet is much more like an upside creation machine. And of those two sides of my business, I'm much more interested in focusing on the upside creation than the downside avoidance. And the problems that have arisen from less and less frequently checking email are 
they haven't been problems that are large enough that make me think, oh, I really need to increase the amount of time that I spend in email versus working on videos. So that's partly why like the time that I have just spent has gotten smaller and smaller on email because I just, I have a hard time seeing what a lot of the positive benefits are of things that, that are coming across that that schedule to me or coming across that system to me. Whereas, like it's been very interesting for me that we set up this podcast largely using Slack. So I've never I've never used Slack before. And there is no doubt that we were able to go from you convinced me to first episode a hundred times faster because we were using Slack, which is, I mean, for people who haven't used Slack, it's kind of an instant messenger program, but it's it's designed for little teams of people working together on a project. And the thing about Slack, which makes me much more receptive to using it, is like we were talking about before, it's now a constrained domain problem. When I open Slack, there's stuff that is related to the Cortex project in there. And that's all it is. I don't also have a message from my dentist saying that it's time to schedule a checkup. I know what's going to be in there, and it's much clearer about what needs to get done. You're asking a question about something that we're trying to set up, or you know, here's an idea for a topic of for the show. It's not we don't even use it as a just general chatting app most of the time. So that that's why like Slack has been a very interesting experience for me to use. And I wish that I could use Slack with more people in my life, but it's a it's a problem of like um I don't have a team of people that I'm working with. I have a bunch of individual people that I'm working with. And so it still makes sense for our contact to go through email. But I'm just I'm aware that Slack has been a very interesting an interesting and vastly improved experience for moving a project forward to completion. And I would definitely consider it for other things in the future over over email. You could totally set Slack up in a way to deal to do a lot of one-on-one stuff. Like it is possible to configure it in that way. Yeah, it may be possible, but the problem is also just I'm not going to convince the four or five accountant slash tax advisors <laughs> that I work with to all like, hey guys, let's all get together on Slack. Like this, sure. they're they're not going to do that for a single client of theirs. It's never going to happen. Even though I wish to God that I could convince them to do that. This is actually one of the things that I wanted to talk about was like replacements for email and Slack for Relay, you know, the company that the podcast network that Cortex is a part of. It's all we use. We never email. Like mm-hmm. I never email anybody like that's in that room, which is the majority of people involved with the company. And then I also have separate Slack groups because you have like different accounts. So we have separate ones for like design and separate ones for development as well. So like mm-hmm. practically everything that we do as a company goes through Slack. And so there's a couple of different ways that, that it works. Like we, so we have like a general chat room where people that are part of Relay just chat. Mm-hmm. Uh, to each other in the day but then there are specific private groups that are set up like 
the one that me and Gray have for this show, where we talk about the things that are part of the show. And every single show on Relay has one, and that's where like preparation for the show and discussion about the show goes. Mm. And one of the great things about it is like I don't bother, I don't worry about like just throwing stuff in there and just waiting for you to get to it whenever you can get to it. Mm-hmm. But if we were emailing each other, I would be way more considered about it. Mm-hmm. Because there was a time uh, where me and you were just emailing each other about things, like before we started working on any projects. And I was always really like anxious about sending stuff to you mm-hmm. because I knew that all I was doing was adding to a problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, That that's actually a good way to put it, where email email feels like a general purpose problem whereas slack feels much more like a tool to a solution that's they feel very they feel very different for for anyone who's followed slack the company you can see that they have had just massive massive growth since their introduction and i think that that is in no small part because people do feel like they need some solution to email there, there needs to be something different for for certain kinds of tasks, and Slack seems to fit that very well. And it's why when when you brought up Slack, I was very happy to give it a try because I was aware at that time, like, man, if we're going to email each other, this is this is not going to, or this is going to take a long time for for this to actually occur if we're going to do it on email which was exactly why i brought up slack (laughs) (laughs) yes and but this is what i mean about i'm trying to figure out ways to pull out things from email and one of the other things that i've done which we mentioned briefly on the previous show is i email my personal assistant a lot but i have been trying to migrate a lot of that to wonderlist instead because our communication is largely task-based so I can put stuff in there for her and it synchronizes on her end and she sees it and then I can see what she's working on or what she's ticked off. Like that's way better for me than trying to send out emails and keep track of what emails have been sent. So this is what I've been I've been working on with email is trying to figure out, okay, what can go somewhere else or what can I pull out? Like looking for these systematic systematic solutions to the the problems that um that I've been having recently with just this isn't this isn't a tool that is working for me as well as it was before and I'm not going to double down on effort on email I need to figure out a better solution for this I still have things that I want to cover mm-hmm. but I don't want to do them today okay because I expect that once we both come away from the show and think about it and listen to it and get feedback, there might be other things we want to talk about anyway. So I expect that there may be some more that we discuss next time. But there was one thing that I wanted to to finish on today, Mm -hmm. which was trying to think of, for you, what a dream replacement of email would look like. So a couple of things that I would mention that might help spark some thought. Um, How open would it be to the rest of the world? Would it be character limited in any way? And would there be more silos that are built in? So like, for example, how Slack has different groups that you can communicate in different ways with different people. Or like how Gmail does a pretty good job of filtering email out itself if you want it to be set up that way into like promotions and newsletters and and important email and that kind of thing. Do you have a sense for what you would like a replacement to email to be? No, I don't. Because again, it's it's 
Email is trying to solve a bunch of different problems. So I think that it's, you have to think about the nature of the kind of problem that you're trying to solve. And it's just email is trying to do so many things. So I'm not, I, I wouldn't say, oh boy, I wish email had a character limit because sometimes I need to receive or send extraordinarily long emails. I think that, that does happen. <laughs> For me, really, a, a perfect email replacement would be a 100% trustworthy robot with strong artificial intelligence that I could just turn the whole thing over to. <laughs> Listen, you handle this. I can entirely trust it to to go through that for me. But we don't we don't have that as a as an option right now. So the replacement isn't the system, it's the person who receives it, right? You want to give it to a robot, i.e. cutting you out. Yeah, this is this is what I'm trying to focus on now is cutting me out of the email loop on a bunch of things. That's that's what I'm trying to work toward uh, as as an ultimate solution. Okay. Let me do a couple of Ask Gray questions with you, and we'll round out today. Okay. Um, and this one is kind of linked, and it's interesting, and I know that people will ask it, so I need to say it today. Uh, Reese asked, mm-hmm. how do you reconcile your email policy with having an email-based newsletter? Yeah, everyone asks this. I don't understand this question. This is why I know I need to ask this, because otherwise people will ask it. Yeah, everyone goes, you you don't like receiving emails. Why do you have an email list? Because <laughs> it, I, it, it seems so obvious to me. I, I have, almost have a hard time answering the question. But the email list is there as an option for people who find it useful. I like people to sign up with the email list. The number of people who have signed up is one of the most important numbers that I keep track of. But I I have it there for people who find it useful. And currently there are about 75,000 people who are signed up on that, that email list. But I'm not going to make assumptions about how other people want to use email or how, how they run things. It's just It's just there as an option. I'm signed up to other people's email lists, and I'm I'm glad to receive them sometimes. But yeah, so I, I, it is there for people to take advantage of. And I don't know how other people run their own email systems, but obviously people find it useful. I can see from the numbers from uh, MailChimp, which I'm currently using to run that, that lots of people open it and lots of people click on it. So it's there. People find it useful. I'm really glad to have a notification system that is independent from YouTube or other proprietary systems. So that's why the email list is there. It's for people to take advantage of. But it's not a it's not a requirement. I think that's the thing, right? Because the complaints that you have about and I have about the email that we receive is because we don't opt into it. Like but mm-hmm. this system is completely opt in. Yes. Yes. You don't accidentally end up subscribed. And then you also have some really great things that I don't see in other places where people can specify what they want to see and you categorize things. Yeah, this is, I try, I try very hard with that email list to think about how would I like an email list to be because I'm very sensitive about getting too many emails. So yes, I, I do have a system where people can say, I only want emails about videos or I only want emails about podcasts or don't send me emails if there's new merchandise or like all the, I try to set it up so that it is as, as customizable as possible because there are a couple of email lists that I am signed up 
to, but I get a little frustrated because the volume is just a bit too high and I wish that I could filter out certain kinds of things. So that's why I set that that up is to try to make it as easy and convenient for people as possible. And that's also why I have the gigantic unsubscribe button on the bottom because there's nothing I hate more than trying to search through very low contrast, very small text on the bottom of an email list to find the unsubscribe link. I know that people find it interesting because as people find it useful because for, for reasons unknown, an email didn't go out about last week's episode and people were like, where is it? I, I don't know that the episode went out, you know? It's not reasons unknown. You don't have to cover up for me, Mike. <laughs> the, the, the reasons unknown is just like I said on the show, this was me thinking I can run through the checklist in my head without having to actually look at it. And so when uh, the Cortex went live, I was like, oh, great. Let me post it everywhere. Post it on Facebook, post it on Tumblr, post it on my regular website, post it on Twitter. Oh, I forgot to send out the email. And then by the next morning, I, f- I think it's too late to send it out. It's, it's done. I-, I feel it's too much of a burden to send out 75,000 emails to people about a thing that was supposed to happen yesterday. So that's why there's no email. Once again... I thought I could do the checklist without looking at it. And I have to relearn this lesson all the time. I didn't want to drop you in it, you know, even no, though even fine. though I kind of did. <laughs> that's what this that's what this podcast is turning out to be is is me trying to pierce my own reputation of being some kind of amazing perfect productive person. <laughs> I don't <laughs> it's not a reputation that I want. I don't think of it even in that way, whilst I know some people do, because there are people that would like to hear us talk about productivity practices. Um, Mm. I've got that kind of request. And the point is, the idea is that of this show, again, I don't know if if we explained it poorly, is that me and Gray are people that do a lot of stuff, but kind of classify ourselves as not traditionally productive people. Mm. And that we have our own weird ways of doing things. And more so... I just find, and the reason I wanted to do it in the first place, is I find your methods fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I treat it like a nature documentary. <laughs> you know, like I'm Richard uh-huh. Attenborough in this scenario. And, you know, you're the lesser spotted gray. Uh-huh. That's, that's what I am. That's that's how I kind of treat this. Look at him. Oh. Look at him as he okay. tries to navigate his email. Yeah. <laughs> Lewis asked... Uh, about music because we talked about music last week you were talking about music as a function which many people enjoyed as i did Mm -hmm. oh something i missed when you first said it and when i was doing the edit i was like what when you said that you pick a song and just listen to it over and over how does that not drive you crazy i mean i don't even i don't even know how to i don't know if i should even talk to you about this because we we just we can't understand it think of music as so so different it is very common for me to have a single song on repeat for an entire afternoon. Ah, oh, just okay. I don't, there's but, no point. Just leave it. But Lewis yeah. asked if you listen to Girl Talk, the you know all day as we mentioned multiple times a day. Does does it get stuck in your head? No. Oh wow! You're, I just okay. And ladies, you see him here, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> as Gray doesn't understand music. Sometimes sometimes music does get stuck in my head in a frustrating way. But the solution to that is also just to put it on repeat for an hour. And then it then then I'm done with this. Gavin wants to know. 
<laughs> Gavin wants to know uh, how many hours Smart Speed has saved you in Overcast. So the app that we both use to listen to podcasts, Overcast, has a function in it called Smart Speed where it like shortens the gaps in conversation. And it is possible if you are an Overcast user, if you press the little button that is, looks like the Overcast icon on the top left and scroll right down to the bottom, if you use the Smart Speed function, it will tell you how many hours Smart Speed has saved you. Mm. I have 46 hours saved in smart speed yeah you have way more than me you have way more than me because i don't i don't use smart speed on all podcasts uh, so I, I i only have uh it says 24 hours right now okay. for me on overcast so it's not it's not an enormous amount but i don't i don't run smart smart speed on every single podcast only maybe half of the podcasts hmm. there you go so that's so that. that's that's that if you'd like to send in your feedback for us, um, please feel free to do it in any method that you choose. If you send email, it will come to me and I'm happy to receive it and I will look for it as I do with everything else. But as we've mentioned on previous shows and especially on today's show, our preferred method of feedback now definitely is Reddit where you can you can voice your opinions and let them be known. Uh, but also if you'd like to ask questions, one of the best ways to do that is to use the Ask Gray hashtag and they come through. I just want to point something out about that as well. I go through those every week. I pull out a couple for the episode, but I have a large bank of questions that are building up. Um, mm-hmm. which I am doing specifically for a couple of reasons. Sometimes they meet a topic that I want to talk about, so mm-hmm. they might even match that, or I feel like I'm already going to talk to Gray about it, so it will be answered via the topic of the show. But also, I think at some point, I'm going to do a question and answer type episode to clear out a bunch of the interesting stuff. But I look through them all. Some are considered for the episodes, some are asked on the episodes, and also some help inform topics as well. So I love to receive those. They're really great. But also, you know, people can ask questions and stuff in the Reddit, and I, I pick those up before the start of every episode and look through everything to make sure that I'm fully informed about um, how the show should progress because it is very important to me to get this type of feedback because I know what people want to hear about on the show and that's very useful for me. Mm-hmm. So please continue to do that and I'll speak yes. to you again, Mr. Gray. Talk to you later.